I didn't plan on doing this. I want to read for you Revelation 19 in verse, starting in verse 6. The Bible says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with white fine linen, bright and pure. The Bible records there in Revelation 19 that the marriage supper of the Lamb, when the church is assembled with, his, with her bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and all of us come together, and all of us, all of the saved, all the redeemed, get excited, and we start to shout, and we start to be happy, and we start to oh, be overwhelmed with the joy that we have of being with Christ. Quite honestly, sometimes I think we get in churches and some of you are holding it all in until that time. And I want to tell you this morning that there is an opportunity that we have every day when we come together, especially in the Lord's house, to practice what we're going to be doing for the rest of eternity. And I want to encourage some of you to think about, this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my years and my life, and why not go ahead and start today getting excited about being in the house of the Lord. I missed many of your mugs and many of your faces last week, and I've got two sermons only one morning to deliver it. So, we're going to have to listen fast and move quickly. So 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we're going to continue at during our time together in the Word. I am so appreciative of Greg and those that serve with him to lead us in worship. And one of these days, these two young men on the cajon, right? Right? I've been studying. I've been, I, do, I don't know how to do anything with it, but I, I heard what it is. So on the cajon and the, not skins, what are they? Drums? We just couldn't call them just regular, just drums. Maybe drums, halfway drums. What do you, something. Anyways, what do you, what do you call them, Corey? Pseudo drums, okay? One of these days, these young men are going to break out and we're just going to lose our mind and we're going to become Pentecostal like Greg is. So it's one of those things. We're just going <laughs> to... We're just going to do that together. So I'm so grateful that you're here. Hopefully you got a copy of the bulletin when you came in. On the back of that, there'll be some notes that we're going to use during our time together. We're at 1 Peter chapter 3 that we're going to be picking up in a few moments in verse 8. I think I was about 12 years old. When my family moved to Wellston. Up until that time, as far as I can remember back, we lived at I-35 and Britain Road. We lived there on an acreage and at Hefner and Sooner Road was a church that is now called Oakdale Baptist Church. Back in the days it was called Witcher Baptist Church and that's where uh, my family, that's where I was at. Every time the doors were open, we were at Witcher Baptist Church. But there, just a few hundred yards west of where the church sits at today, there was a Deep Fork River. It's the same Deep Fork River that runs right here on the uh, side of town here. But the Deep Fork River ran there, uh, right there along the church and it also ran through the property where I grew up on. And so so you figure it's about a, a mile and a half or so as the crow flies. You follow the curvature of the, the creek bed. And, but there was many times in the Sunday afternoons we would do, and it's legendary there in those times, it was called creek hikes. So we take our clothes to church, and then we get out of church, and we change our clothes, and then us boys and dad and whoever unsuspecting white wayward people wanted to go with us, and we had walked those several hundred yards down, get off the bridge, get down into the river, and we would trace that river bottom back to our house. We'd get out, go, wash off, eat, go back to church, rinse and repeat kind of thing. But as we were making these creek hikes back and forth, there would be times that we'd come across a, a sandbar or some place that was pretty level. 
And we had these things called mud fights. I don't know if you've ever been experienced to it, but I guarantee you there's not a young man in this room that shouldn't have experienced a good old-fashioned mud fight before his days are over. And we'd get down there on this bar, and they would, but we would all be in the water. We'd be in the water we could touch. And the idea was you'd reach down, you'd grab a handful of clay, sand, silt, rocks, whatever you could get a hold of. And the object was is you were to bring that handful of dirt out of the water and you were to fling it at the person opposite you trying to pelt that person as hard as you could and then as that person wants to return the volley that person comes back up and is going to throw it right back at you but in the the meantime your idea was as you were going to submerge yourself below the water line the mud passes right over you you come up freshly reloaded and you fling it and there is this volley of mud slinging back and forth now sometimes you would have people slinging mud back and forth at each other and then sometimes you had people like Tucker. <laughs> and Tucker was like the instigator. He was the roving instigator. And he would pop up and let's say John and I are slinging mud at each other. He would sling mud at John and blame it on me and then he would disappear. And next thing you know, we're just fighting one another, slinging mud back and forth. Usually there was all kinds of emotions, upset. Sometimes there was fists being thrown. But there's always something to talk about. Always some type of mud left in your ears from these mud fights going back and forth. But you know, it doesn't matter how much we sling or slung mud. We never got anywhere. In many respects, my concern in the days in which we're living in is we have a lot of mud slinging going on. We have a lot of mud slinging going on outside the walls of this church. There is different factions and different parties and different opinions and different ideas and there is mud slinging going on all around us and even Satan is very adept and very wise at being able to incite people to sling mud against other people and we can see this going on you can turn on your television and you can see it happen politically you can see it happen when it comes to this pandemic and whether you vaccine or you don't vaccine you can see it happening when people when it comes to their vocations there is all this mud slinging going on back and forth you even see it happening especially on social media oh my gracious you get on there and you don't have to look very far before you can find a fight and we see this mud slinging going on outside of the church the danger that we're faced with today is that it becoming starting inside the church and you have people that show up for church and the only time they show any type of emotion was they get mad when they don't get their way And you get people that show up for church and all they're here is to take and never to give. You get people that are showing up at church and having their own agenda and their own ideas and their own interest in mind. And you get this mudslinging going on back and forth. And the result is that you have distractions and divisions in the life of the church. And brothers and sisters, it's one thing for us to see it outside these walls. But it's a whole different thing for the world to see it inside these walls. I think that's what Peter is referring to when we step back into this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter is going to remind the church. Now, I've told you in the weeks past, I've told you that if you are here this morning and you are a lost person, I am glad that you're here. But I want you to know that the primary focus of what Peter is writing to is not to the lost person. He's writing primarily to the saved person. He's writing primarily to the church. Now, if you're here and you're lost, I hope that you know by the end of the day how it is that you become saved. I hope you hear the love of Jesus Christ clearly communicated to you. But please do not think, please do not misunderstand me. Many of the direction and the focus of Peter is is on the attitude and the behavior of the church. So as you are here, if you are lost, I want you to hear, we are glad you're here. And during these next few moments, I want you to hear, this is how Christians in the church are supposed to be. 
And just like I've said before, if you're here this morning and you know that you're saved, you know you're a part of this faith family, this is how we're supposed to be. And this is how lost people, and this is what lost people are supposed to see in us. So Peter steps back into this passage there in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 and he is going to talk about some of these divisions. He's going to talk about some of these distractions. I don't think he has the mudslinging on the creek bank in mind but I think it is in view when he says, alright Christian, alright church, this is how you're to live. He says there in verse 8, finally. Now I think that is so humorous when I look at that because he has another two chapters he doesn't go through. You ever been in those church services where that preacher says finally or in closing and he goes for another 30 minutes? Well that's what Peter's doing right here. He says in verse 8, finally all of you have unity of mind sympathy brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling but on the contrary bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good and let him seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. As we come to this passage, we see that Peter is going to remind them what it means to be different. What it means to be different in the church. What it means to be different in their behaviors. And I put there at the title, at the top of your notes, what it means to be different in the communities in which we are. When we think about the world outside, we are not to resemble the world outside these walls. We are to resemble Christ. We resemble the kingdom of God. And yet too many times the world is looking from their perspective and saying, why do I need to go to church? They are just like me. Why do I need to go in there? I can live just like them out here. And we have all of this hypocrisy, all of this duplicity going on in our lives. And Peter is writing to a church and to a group of people that he is not going to ignore their circumstance. He is not going to neglect their circumstance. He is going to say, it doesn't matter about your circumstance. God still has a calling for your life. And he calls them to live differently. He calls them to live differently in their culture. Now, how do we do that, Spence? Well, Peter is addressing that here in this text. So let's just walk systematically through this text this morning and look to how Peter says we are to live differently. First thing I want you to notice is that he calls us to be a different people. He calls us to be a different people. If you look there, back up in verse 8, he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind. I think it's very important when you think about the word that is used there and the word that is that is translated there when he talks about unity he is not talking about uniformity I want to remind you this morning that unity is not uniformity they are two different things uniformity has more to do with the outward looking of a person that we all dress right they're all dressed the same way that we all sit the same way that we all talk the same way that we all look the same way that we all move the same way when John and I were going through our initial military training it was all about uniformity we all had to look the same do the same move the same act the same behave the same it was all about uniformity but Peter is saying I'm not worried about uniformity I'm worried about unity I want you to have one mind is the way that you can think about the word. He wants all of the Christians in the church today to have one mind. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and go, well, how in the world is that going to happen? Now, you look around this room and there is a wide variety of personalities represented in this room. A wide variety of backgrounds, a wide variety of, uh, of attitudes, a wide variety of perspectives, a wide variety of experiences. How in the world are we all going to come together and we're all going to have one mind? 
Oh, I'm glad you asked that. Take, hold your finger there in 1 Peter and go back to Romans chapter 12. Back to the left of your Bible, I want you to see this first. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, Paul talks about how it is that we can have unity in our minds. And it's something that sometimes we pass over and miss so easily when we don't think about it in the context of our spiritual growth. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, notice what Paul says. He says, do not be conformed to the world, this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Did you miss it? He said, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, what Paul is saying and what Peter is echoing is, is that when we get saved and when Christ becomes the Lord of our lives and we are in this movement of sanctification from one person to the other, when we are this new creature in Christ, Galatians, or 2 Corinthians 5, 17, when we are moving from one state to another, this transformation that is taking place, all of our minds are being transformed to resemble the mind of Christ. And when we all have the mind of Christ, we have unity in mind. And so you get back there to 1 Peter chapter 3 and he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind. He wants them to have this idea that their goal is not uniformity. The goal is not for everybody to look the same way, talk the same way, and act the same way. Growing up and being homeschooled, there were some homeschooling families down there in the Oklahoma City area and they fit the stereotype of homeschool families. So dad came in and he had the bowl haircut and he had the athletic shorts and he had the velcro shoes and he had the socks that were pulled up to over his calf. Remember the white socks with the stripes, the colored stripes around the top? And he had the big old glasses and he came in and then his son came in right behind him. It was big enus and little enus if you, remember, if you understand the remark. But it was this idea that they came in and you looked at him and go, they're homeschooling families. And that was a stereotype is that they would fit this personality, fit this image. Well that is what Peter is saying that we're not supposed to be striving for. Not that we all look the same, but that we all have the same heart, transformed by Christ, made in the image of Christ, wedded together with our calling before God. So he says have unity of mind, but then he gives five characteristics. Notice there in the verse, verse 8, back in verse 8, 1 Peter 3, he says, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. He gives them these five characteristics and says, this is what you are to be. This is what it means to be a different people. Not that you're to be competitive socially. Not that you're to be prosperous financially. Not that you're to be successful academically. Not that you're to be widely known culturally, socially. He says this is what it means to be a different people. You have these five characteristics. But do you notice something that is not there? He is not talking about outward characteristics. He's talking about inward characteristics. I don't know about you, but I sometimes come to a text and I start saying, what in the world? Why, why is he putting it like that? He never talked about anything outward. He's only talking about inward. Maybe it's because of this. Maybe because Peter understands that your hands follow your heart. That your hands follow your heart. See, Peter understands that uniformity is temporal. You have people today in the church that they come and they conform to the methods and they conform to the practices of the church. And they come and they go through the motions, they go through the actions, they sit up, they sit down, they sing, they, 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 they pray, they go through all the steps, but they've never had a change of heart. And he understands that uniformity is outward and it's easy to put on the outward uniformity, but it's the heart where the faithfulness begins. It's the heart where our obedience to Christ begins. It's our heart where our devotion, our commitment to the church and to 
the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. It's in our heart where our attitudes change. It's in the heart where our speeches change. It's in the heart where our sacrifice and our service begins. It's in our heart that then our hands follow our heart. So he's reminding them. He's calling them in verse 8. He says, I want you to be a different people. But in order to be a different people, you've got to start with a different heart. So he tells them, have unity of mind. How do we have unity of mind? By having these five characteristics. How do we have these five characteristics? We have a transformed heart. Romans chapter 12. In other words, he is telling us this morning that faithfulness is better than action. Sometimes we get this idea that just tell me what I got to do. Back in 2009, I surrendered again to the gospel ministry. I looked at that preacher and I said, so what do I got to do now? And he said, what is the Holy Spirit leading you to do? I'm not asking what the Holy Spirit's leading me to do. What what do you want me to do now? I want a list. I want five things that I'm supposed to do, five things that I'm supposed to not do. Just give me the to-do list. Let me just mark boxes. Don't we wish that Christianity was like that? Give me a list of do's and a list of don't spends and let me just mark the boxes. That way I'll know when I'm done and I know when I can quit. That's where a lot of other religions are at in this world. It's a whole list of to-do's and a whole list of to-don'ts and all these things just checking boxes and as long as I did all these things, I did eight out of ten, that means I'm right. If I do more than six out of ten on the don'ts, then I'm a bad deal. So it just becomes checking boxes and sometimes people think about coming to church like that. I just come to check a box. I come so that I'll have the favor of God in my life coming this week. That's not faithfulness. That is not obedience to Jesus Christ. That's not what it means to be a different person. And that's not what it means to be different people. I've told you before and I'm going to keep telling you again. I'm not so much concerned with your outward actions. I'm concerned with your faithfulness to the Lord. I'm not keeping track of when you're here or how you're here or what you do when you're here. I'm glad that you're here. But more so than your presence or your attendance on a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, or a Wednesday night, I, my burden is that you to be, that for you to be faithful before God. Not faithful to a preacher, not faithful to a church, not faithful to an ideal, not faithful to a personality, not faithful to denomination. I want you to be faithful to God. Because at the end of the day, when your time comes and you stand before your maker, it's not going to matter how faithful you were to the church. What's going to matter is how faithful you were to God. So Peter says, you want to get away from this mudslinging? You're going to want to get away from these distractions, these divisions that are taking place in the life of the church and the life of the world? Remember, you are a different people. And because you're a different people, he says in verse 9, we have a different response. Because we're a different people, we have a different response. Read with me again. He says in verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Now, I really have a problem with that verse. I don't know. Maybe some of you thought, well, you're not supposed to have a problem with any of the verses. No, I got, I got a problem with verses. He says, do not repay evil for evil. And you want to look at him and say, Peter, don't you understand what these crackers are doing? Don't you understand what these people are doing? Don't you understand what the, what, what the society is doing and how the society is poking us and instigating us and, and riling in us? Do you not understand what's being said about us? Do you not understand what's being attacked about us? Do you not understand what's being threatened to us? Do you not understand, Peter, what's going on? And you're telling me that I'm not supposed to do anything. Yeah. Well, I got a problem with that, Peter. I don't think Peter cares. I don't think it's in Peter's mind or worry about what Spence thinks or what First Baptist Church in Wilson thinks. I, want, I think what Peter has in mind is that our response points people to Jesus Christ. 
In fact, he's going to talk about in the, in the coming weeks ahead, and you get back further in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he's going to talk about the response of Christ and how our response should reflect as a response of Christ. So he says, listen, you do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. In other words, he is saying, it doesn't matter what they're doing around you. You don't have to return kind for kind. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say that evil doesn't exist. He doesn't try to blame God for the evil that is around them. He doesn't try to blame them for the evil that's in their life. He just simply says evil is a reality. I think we need to remember this morning, church, that we cannot defeat evil. We cannot defeat evil. Evil. You may say, well, Spence, why do you say that we cannot defeat evil? Because evil is the result of sin. Evil is the result of sin, people rebelling before God, people rebelling against God, and that rebellion brings about sin. And we were not charged in this life to defeat evil. We were charged in this life to live holy before God. You may say, well, I, can, I, I think I can do something about evil. I can address it. I'm going to tell you that ultimately you and I cannot defeat evil. Well, and how does it defeat it, Spence? It's defeated through Jesus Christ. And that's where the beauty of the gospel comes in. The beauty of the gospel comes in that you can't save yourself. You can't defeat your own evil. You can't overcome the bondage of sin in your life. And so Christ came. He lived the life that you could not live. He died a death that you deserved to die. He hung on the cross. He gave up his life. He was buried in the tomb. And on the third day, he defeated death. He defeated evil. He rose from the tomb. And he has made it possible for us to have salvation and forgiveness because Christ defeated it for us. And yet we live in a day and age where we think that we're going to set the right wrong. We think we're going to set the wrong right. We think we're going to go out throughout this life and we're going to have all of our way. Some of the concerns that I have right now with some of this movement right now with the social justice and the, the critical race theory and all of these things is that people think that you're going to policy justice. You're going to legislate justice. You are going to bring about reform and social change and to set things right. And I want to assure you that nowhere in scripture do you see, do you see the church bringing the justice that God brings. And brothers and sisters, sometimes we need to understand that evil is going to be around us. In fact, verse 9, you look there, Peter is not trying to deny it. He's not trying to excuse it. He is going to already acknowledge that there's evil around you, but he says in the midst of evil, in the face of evil, in light of evil, not just evil, but evil and reviling, this is how you respond. You do not turn kind for kind. In other words, he is saying, we do choose, we choose our reaction. You mean, I'm not justified? And firing back a response on social media? You mean I'm not justified for being upset and cursing at them when they cursed at me? You think I'm not justified for treating them the way they treated me? Boy, you know, if they didn't want me to act like this, then they shouldn't act like that. Am I not justified in doing what I do because of what they are doing? And Peter would say, no. Because you're a different people, you have a different response. Now that's difficult for me. That's difficult for me because I am one of those people that it's pretty black and white. There's not a lot of gray in my life. And if it's right, it's right. And if it's wrong, it's wrong. And if you're wrong, I feel like somebody should love you enough to tell you that you're wrong. And I got a lot of love sometimes in my heart to tell people where they're wrong. And to explain to people how in the world that they're getting it wrong. And then you're living in this day in life that a lot of people want to do that. But then as soon as you say something, it always gets mischaracterized. Taken out of context. 
And the next thing you know, you are the evil person. You are being reviled. So Peter says, you have a different response. What makes the church different than politics? What makes the church different than the current society around us? What makes the church different than all of the things that are going on outside these walls? Is that the church are different people. And so therefore, they have a different response. He says there, he says there in verse 9. Why should we not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling? Reviling for reviling. He says, but on the contrary, bless. Bless. Let's go back and look at that word up. The word bless just means to act graciously towards. It doesn't mean that the person deserves it. <laughs> it doesn't mean that the person has earned it. It doesn't mean that the person is owed it. It doesn't mean that you're going to get anything in return by offering it. It doesn't mean that there is some type of extra treasure because you are being long-suffering in your actions. It's that you are going to treat a person different, not because of who they are, but because of who you are. That challenges me. And how many times I respond to people the way they are instead of responding to the people the way that I should be. And we get stuck in this cyclone, this, this vortex, if you will, of the mudslinging that goes back and forth. She said this, and he said this, and I said this, and they said this, and this has to go back and forth. I got to stand up for my honor, and I got to respond, and I got to set the record straight, and I've got to react, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. And next thing you know, I'm down in the ditch with the rest of them, slinging mud back and forth, and the only thing is, is we're all losing ground. And we're all getting dirty. You say, well, Spence, where does that time come that we need to respond? Peter doesn't give us that indication. He doesn't tell us when it's time to respond. He doesn't say, when is it okay to stand up? I, I am so conflicted right now in this season that we're in. Because some of you are coming to me and saying, Spence, there's a mandate being put on my vocational employment. What am I supposed to do? Some of you are coming and saying, you know what, you should speak against this subject. Some of you are coming and saying, you know what, you should speak for this subject. Some of you are coming and saying, you know what, I'm looking at the wall builders down, or down there in Texas and I see what they're doing. Some of you are looking at Fairview Baptist Church down in Edmond saying, I see what they're doing. Some of you are looking and saying, you know, I think the preacher should be more vocal about the applicable nature of God's word to our daily lives. And I think that he should cause us, lead us to take a stand. And I want to say, you know how many different opinions are in this room? <laughs> And you know how much of the stuff that you're focused on outside these walls has nothing to do with the eternity of the kingdom of God? Oh, I've got my personal opinions. But brothers and sisters, this is not as a place for us to air our personal opinions. This is a place for us to air our unity of one mind. And brothers and sisters, I want we come in here that we are not dictated and consumed with the affairs, the distractions, and the divisions of this world. I want us to be able to come in here and to be focused on the fact that there are lost people going to hell. And there are saved people that are backslidden. And there are people equipped with the word of God and the truth of God and the message of Jesus Christ that are getting so caught up with all the mudslinging and they're not doing anything for the kingdom of God. And why not that be our focus when we come in here? We should have a different response. We should say, I want to be a blessing. It requires a different mindset. So he talks about us being a different people. He talks about us having a different response in this last one and we're done. A different purpose. He talks about us having a different purpose. Because we're a different people, we have a different response. 
Well, why are we different people? Because we have a different purpose. He, he gets that. Now, he's going to quote here from Psalm 34. So, depending on how your Bible is set up, depending on how the typeset is, sometimes they will identify that it's being quoted from another spot in Scripture. And many of you are going to have a Bible that's going to have a reference, going to have a number or some type of footnote. So, it's not like I'm coming up with something new. You look on there. Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16 is where it's being quoted from. So, hold your place there in First Peter. And let's turn back to what he says in Psalm 34. Let's read it in its original context. Now, Peter is quoting scripture when he's writing so he's not misquoting he just he's taking a, a passage of scripture and pulling it out for what he's doing here so let's go back to look at what he says in Psalm 34 Peter or sorry David is writing <coughs> and the whole the whole tenor the whole tone of Psalm 34 is his worship of God it's his gratitude for God it is is, is, is God's glory in his life he eats things like this. Look at Psalm 34 and verse 1. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. You get down to verse 8 and he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then he comes down there to verse 11. He says, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then verse 12 begins the passage that you're seeing there in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So you go back over to 1 Peter chapter 3 and that's, that's where Peter was quoting when he talks about it. Now he doesn't take it out of quotes. He doesn't take it out of context. But he reminds us that this is what we're looking at. David is saying, I want you to see the majesty of God. Because when you see the majesty of God, it changes what you do. It changes how you respond. We were, we were blessed. I guess two weeks ago, Bill get some time away and take the kids and you know, people talk about Theodore Roosevelt National Park. Uh, and then you get there and you see it. It makes a difference. They talk about the Badlands down there in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And, and then you get there and you get to see it and it changes. When you get a glimpse of what it is, it changes how you talk about it. Years ago, you asked me about the Grand Canyon. I'd say, that's a pretty big ditch. <laughs> And it is a big ditch until you get to the edge and you're looking out and you're going, this isn't just a ditch. <laughs> this is evidence that there is a creator. This is evidence that there is a maker. And I don't care all about this hocus pocus about erosion and blah, 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 blah. This is evidence that we are not alone in this world. And there is a God who made this and who made this and will also be the person I answer to one day with my life. And it changes when you get the glimpse, when you get the glory, when you get the awe, when you get the idea. It changes how you view your life. And so Peter comes in here in this passage and he takes them back. He's taking that church back and saying, remember, David was in awe of God. He was in awe of what God had done and that changed his tone. That changed his tenor. That changed his attitude when it came to God. So Peter says, this is why you have a different purpose because you have a different view of God. And because your view of God is different, it changes our metrics of success. Which means our metrics of success are different. So you see there in verse 10, he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. He says that is the goal of the person. Not money, not possessions, not houses, not academics, not accomplishments, not jobs, not being renowned upon social media. He says that our metrics for success change. Your desire is to live a faithful life 
and a full life for the glory of God. Your metrics change. Your means of success changes. And not just that, but he goes on. He says, who desires to love life and see good days? Let him do this. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. That is there in verse 10. He reminds us that our actions reflect more than just us. Every time you open your mouth, you're pointing to something. We, we talked about it before, how the tongue in your mouth and your tongue in your shoes, they just go the same direction. How many times though, do when we open our mouths, we are pointing to what matters to us. So when you come together, when we come together and all we want to do is talk about football, that has its place. But if that's all you talk about, then what you're telling everybody is that's all that matters to you. You come in and all you want to do is talk politics. <laughs> what you're doing is you're telling everybody that's all that matters to you. When you come in and whatever it is that is on your lips and in your mouth, whatever it is, that is what matters to you. And so Peter says, you know what? When you are captivated with the awe of God, when you're captivated with the glory of God, when you're in love with Jesus Christ, you know what? It's going to come out. It's going to get said at some point. It's going to come around that you're going to have to talk about Jesus at some point. And if you don't talk about him, how much are you in love with him? How much are you in awe of God? So he says, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Then he goes on in verse 11 and he says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. He says this idea of peace, it is known, it's available, it's possible. But you know that peace does not come from a person. Peace does not come from a policy. Peace does not come from a political party. Peace comes from the presence of Jesus Christ. I know we were sitting in Sunday school this morning and, and David Malfres asked about how do we define peace. And, and there was different definitions and I know there, there's other right definitions. But if you say, Spence, what is the definition of peace? The presence of Christ. Because when you have the presence of Christ in your life, what else do you have to fear? What else do you have to worry about? What other questions do you have? You have Christ with you. So he tells them, we are a different people. We have a different response. We have a different purpose. Meaning that we have a different way in which we live our lives. So he says, looking through the text, just walking straight through the text, he reminds them what this difference is. But then you get down to verse 12. Maybe even the more, most piercing words that we're going to look at this morning. He says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. But his ears are open, and his ears are open to their prayer. So he gives us one condition. That for the person that are living a righteous life, does that mean a perfect life? It doesn't mean a perfect life. Does that mean a blameless life? That doesn't mean a blameless life. Does that mean that they're free from error or guilt or... No. He says the person that is living righteous. What does he mean? He's living, he's meaning holy. He's meaning a life that is set apart before God. He's meaning a life that is devoted to God. A life that is going from one level of sanctification to another. He is saying for this righteous person, what is there? The eyes of the Lord are upon him and his ears are open to the prayer. But, but, and I wish you would circle this, underline this, make a note of this. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So when you look around this world and you see that it seems like evil is winning, immorality is winning, people are Celebrating the things that used to be condemned, the things that used to be condemned are now are about being lifted up. And if you are not one of those people that are celebrating, then you're on the wrong side of history. And all these things are taking place. And all of us are looking around saying, Does God not know this is happening? God knows this is happening. And what's fearful is that the eyes of the Lord are against those who do evil. I look at this passage and I'm reminded that the eyes of the Lord are on both. But it's the gaze of the Lord that makes the difference. 
It's fascinating to me how five boys can have such different personalities. I can look at one boy and he can be looking at me and I can just give him a little wink and he just gives me a little wink back and there's just a moment that says, you're doing good, keep going. And the same boy, I can look at him and I can give him the look. You know the look. You've got it. You give it. You know the look. That look that says you're in trouble. And we get away from all these people. It's on. And it's that look and that look that changes. And so it's not that my eyes have changed. It's not the fact that, that our relationship has changed. But, my eye, but the way I'm looking at my child changes. I, I go from seeing him in a state of faithfulness or seeing him in a state of right relationship with me to now I'm seeing him in a state of wrong or, dis, or disobedience or rebellion against me. It's the fact that my eyes are towards him versus my face being against him. It's this idea that there are a number of people, a large number of people in this world today that think that they're where they're supposed to be but the eyes of the Lord against them. Why? Why? Because they are doing evil. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing to be gained by doing evil. Young people, there is nothing to be gained by doing evil. I realize that right now it's popular and it's trendy and everybody says, oh, but everybody's doing it. I'm telling you, there is one person that is not doing it, that is Jesus Christ. And one day we're going to give an account to God and we're going to answer to God for how we lived. He was reminding us, Peter is saying, we are a watched people. Am I watched by my peers? Yeah, you're watched by your peers. You mean I'm watched by the society? Yeah, you're watched by the society. Are you watched by the culture? Yes, you're watched by the culture. But more importantly than that, you are watched by God. Every single one of us. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. Every single one of us. Ezra is being watched by God. Toby is being watched by God. Hurley is being watched by God. Everybody is being watched by God. And it doesn't matter about saying, well, I just have to put on a show while they're watching. Everyone is being watched by God. I'm on this school bus. <laughs> it's a whole different, that's a whole different therapy lesson. It's a whole different therapy session, but I'm on this school bus. And these rascals are on there and they're thinking that they're just going to act however they want to act because they think they got me in a seatbelt and I'm driving the bus and I can't whoop them and drive the bus at the same time. So they think they got me and I tell them, I tell them, you see these cameras? I got a camera and a microphone here. I got a camera and a microphone back there. I got infrared vision on them. They're recording everything that is going on. I may not see it because I may have my eyes on the road, but I'm telling you, those cameras are working. I can have them pull the cameras and send your tail to the office at any moment. Someone is always watching same thing for us when you click that link on your phone when you ponder over that video when you try to find the sharpest most scenario phrase that you can respond back Even when you're driving by yourself down the road, you're being watched. So he says we have a different purpose. We have a different purpose in our life because we realize we're watched people and not just that we're watched people. Then the last one though that you see there, we are promised people. Notice in verse 12 he says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He, he tells us that as long as you're living a faithful, holy life to God, you're never out of the eye. You're never out of the gaze. You're never out of the protective vision of Christ. Oh, you may think that he abandoned. You may think that he dropped you off. You may think that you have been orphaned. But I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, as long as you are a child of God, he is not going to lose you. That's what Brother Mike was talking about last week when he's talking about the prodigal son. And he talked about that whole chapter there in Luke where he's talking about the idea of the lost coin and the lost sheep. And this whole picture was is that God's not going to lose you. 
And I don't know about how many times you have come to the point in your life that you're like, God has forgotten about me. He has stuffed me in a room, shut the door, and he doesn't know where I'm at. I am telling you this morning, brothers and sisters, God has a purpose for your struggles. God has a purpose for your obstacles. God has a purpose for your today. God has a purpose for your tomorrow. God has promised you that when you are one of his, he has a plan and a purpose for your life. It may not be easy. It may not be comfortable. History tells us that out of the 11 disciples that survived after the ascension of Jesus Christ, all of them except for one were murdered. All of them except for one were murdered. Even John was boiled alive, tried to be boiled alive, and he was exiled to the island of Patmos. They all, Peter, was crucified upside down. None of them had an easy time. Thomas was supposedly had gone to India to share the gospel, and they got mad at him because they disagreed with what he said, and they strung him up. Then you get to church history and you see all these saints that have come before us and just because they were on the right side of Jesus didn't mean they are on the right side of the culture. It's just because they were faithful to Jesus doesn't mean that the culture is friendly to them. And you see this happening over and over again but these people were gripped. These people were gripped because they realized they had a different purpose for their life. And brothers and sisters, we are gathered in this room. I realize there are a lot of divisions and there's a lot of distractions everywhere. Be the church. Let us be the church that is not gripped with all the mudslinging that is going on in the culture. Let us not be gripped with all of the inciting division that the Satan and the devil seeks to draw us apart from. But let us be a people. Let us be a different people. Let us be a people with a different response, with a different purpose. Let us be a people that when people look at us, they see a difference in us. So how do we do that? Three things and we're done. When you remember that what we do follows who we are. What we do follows who we are. What we do follows who we are. Ah, Spence, that's not, that's, not, that's not right. Yes, it is. Let me probe a little bit. Pull your toes in. This is evident in where we're at, where we start in the morning, where we go in the morning. For years, I've been a little bit hesitant to say, you know what, there needs to be a daily time with the Lord, and I, I, I strongly encourage you to make it in the morning, you know, because if you don't start with the Lord, it's hard to finish with the Lord. And if you don't start there, I don't know how you do it. Some people in this room say, you know what, that's not my best time. I do it in the evening time. I'm not that disciplined. If I say I'm going to wait, I'm going to do it later, I'm going to do it later, I'm going to do it later, then nine times out of ten later doesn't happen. But you know what, when you wake up, the first thing you do, the first direction you go, the first thing that matters to you, the first thing that you think about, that is where your heart is. And what we do follows who we are. So if you are a knucklehead, you're going to do knucklehead things. And if you're a conformer instead of a confessor, then when you leave these walls, you're going to do whatever the world does and whatever you like. And so what God is calling you to. What we do follows who we are. So you can back that up and you can reverse that and you can say, okay, so what I'm doing shows who I am. And who I am shows who I belong to. And you can keep going back. Number two, our response reveals our belief. Our response reveals our belief. It's all right there. I was headed north on I-35 just this last week and I made a lane change. And the guy behind me was absolutely right. I was a jerk. I made a mistake. I thought I had more space. I cut him off. Not like he had to take evasive action and go to the ditch, but he had to hit his brakes. I was wrong. He honks his horn. 
does the whole thing in the window. And I think to myself, you know what, friend, I've got you pinned. I've got a semi on my right, and I'm sitting here in a vehicle on my left. There's a jersey barrier right here. There's a whole bunch of grass in the field, and you can't go nowhere. So you know what? I can sit here at 45 miles an hour on the side of this semi until I get good and well tired. I don't want it to. <laughs> at least for 10 miles. At least to do something. At least to make him think. At least, at least to get a response. And I thought, no, I was wrong. I'm going to go on, pass, he can go on about his way. Our response matters. Your response matters. I wish I could tell you in all the honesty of my heart, that's always my response, and it's not. <laughs> I just picked one time I could say it did. So, but the idea, <laughs> the reality is, is that our response reveals our belief. So if we have our confidence in God, then we don't have to worry about what they said about me. You know what? Because it doesn't matter what you say about me. I'm ten times worse than you could ever say I am. Because I'm a wretched sinner deserving of death. And Jesus Christ died for me. And I am now a child of God because what Jesus has done for me on the cross. Not because I'm good enough. Not because I deserved it. Not because I earned it. Not because of how great of a person I am. Because of Jesus Christ. And you know what? When you have that confidence, when you have that hope, then you don't have to worry about what people are saying or what people are doing because our response reveals our belief. So when you say, you know what? I know that I'm going to answer to God one day. So I'm going to make sure that I respond in a way that points people to Jesus. Which means that our difference should only be explainable one way. Our difference should only be explainable one way. When people look at First Baptist Church Wilson, the only answer they should have is God. It shouldn't be because of the people of First Baptist Church Wellston. It, couldn't, it shouldn't be because of the leadership of First Baptist Church Wellston. I mean, it shouldn't be because of the location. It shouldn't be because of the history. It shouldn't be because of the tradition. When they look at First Baptist Church Wellston and they say, what in the world is the difference in their lives? They should only be able to explain it one way, and that is God. I read every day a, a, a devotional written by A.W. Tozer, and it's Tozer for the Christian Leaders is the name of the devotional. And so I read this every day, and this morning I woke up and I was reading this, and may not speak to you, but it spoke to me. This is what he writes. We who follow Christ are men and women of eternity. We put no confidence in the passing scenes of the disappearing world. We must resist every attempt of Satan to palm off, palm off upon us the values that belong to mortality. Nothing less than forever is long enough for us. We view the amused sadness with, we view with amused sadness the frantic scramble of the world to gain a brief moment in the sun. The church. The church must claim again her ancient dowry of everlastingness. She must begin again to deal with ages and millenniums rather than with days and years. She must not count numbers but test foundation. She must work for the permanence rather than for appearance. Her children must seek those enduring things that have been touched with immortality. The shallow brook of proper religion chatters on its nervous way and thinks the ocean's too quiet and dull because it lies deep in its mighty bed and is unaffected by the latest shower. My hope and my prayer for us as a church is that we are not consumed and distracted with all the mudslinging going around us, but that we are a people knowing that we are different, having a different response, because we have a different purpose before us. Bow your heads with me.